Greetings to this edition of The Critical Catholic. I'm Mike Lewis. I'm here with David D.W. Lafferty. And today we're going to talk about conspiracy theory that's actually over 40 years old. I guess 43 years old now, almost. We've been picking a lot on contemporary Catholic conservative conspiracism and conspiracy theories that are big today. But today we thought we'd, we'd go with one that, that was actually embraced and promoted by Catholics on the left. Hi, David. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm excited to talk about this stuff because this stuff's fun and it's a little different than dealing with, with stuff that's going on right now that's a little more raw. So we're, we're going back in time. Well, I guess as fun as, as deaths stuff. and uh, sudden deaths and, and accusations yeah, yeah. can be. But yeah, um, so <laughs> we're going to talk about the death of Pope John Paul I, who was Pope for 33 days uh, in the second half of 1978. So uh, he was elected, I think, August 26th, and he, he passed away. Do you know the exact date? He was basically Pope for the month of September, following Pope Paul VI, now Pope St. Paul VI. And then after he passed away, he was replaced by uh, the conclave, came back and elected Pope John Paul II, who was the first non-Italian Pope elected in something like 400 years. So... Uh, David, why don't you uh, share with us your opening thoughts and uh, then sure. we can go into the opening prayer and, and the discussion. Sure. Um, so, yeah, just, I mean, you know, opening thoughts, um, like you said, we, we tend to pick a lot on the uh, traditionalists in the church, especially that tends to be a, a hotbed of, not all traditionalists, I know, but um, th there tends to be a hotbed of conspiracy theory. Um, in more recent times, there's been a, a, a real explosion of conspiracy theory on the right uh, in general within the church um, and in uh, among the right in, in our society at large right now. Um, but this hasn't always been the case. Um, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when conspiracy theory seemed to be more, as far as I had experienced it, seemed to be more a thing of the left. Um, and it was a very... A different sort of uh, mentality and a different sort of approach. And it usually involved, you know, critiquing all of the stuff that was going on to um, keep sort of right-wing forces in power in society, right? And, and and you know, it's some of the same characters, like the Freemasons and stuff were seen to be behind that. I remember there was all this stuff about, you know, George Bush and uh, his connection to... Um, uh, secret societies and, and all this kind of stuff that was very big on the left for a little while. Um, and uh, I think this sort of fits into that general um, mentality. And it's very similar in some ways to, you know, what we saw in the 2000s uh, when uh, the Da Vinci Code came out um, and the conspiracy theory that was outlined there about uh, Opus Dei in particular being um, connected to, you know, secret societies that were protecting this idea that, you know, Jesus had been married and, and stuff like that. Um, it, it really appealed to a certain part of the population, even though it was, you know, just on the face of it, it was just so ridiculous. Um, but uh, it, it, it obviously had huge, huge 
impact on people. Um, and I, I remember all the books that came out trying to uh, debunk this stuff, uh, you know, back in the 2000s, all the Da Vinci Code stuff. Um, and it was, you know, some good work was done there. Um, but yeah, this is sort of in that sort of genre, maybe it was the precursor to some of the Da Vinci Code stuff. Um, but I got to say that, that this, um, this conspiracy theory that we're going to look at is, is a little more rooted in reality. I, I'm going to say I don't I don't think that there's anything really to it in terms of the uh, when it comes to the death of, of John Paul the first. But at the same time, it it does deal with things that that really happened uh, for the most part. Uh, there is a lot of sort of um, insinuation and um, you know there's a degree of maybe right. plausibility based on based on the circumstances. I think that that yeah. make some of it believable at least on the surface until you, until you dig down. At least it. on the, yeah, it's, it's a little more like getting like JFK conspiracy stuff when, where they, they do tend to remain somewhat rooted in reality and things that are actually documentable, but it's how it's all brought together. That's the, uh, the important thing. Um, and that's where you notice where the flaws of it kind of come in, but it's actually really fascinating stuff. So looking forward to getting into that, but maybe we'll do a, a quick prayer first. Yeah. Um, so uh, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Heavenly Father, please guide us in our discussion. Help us to dispel confusion, discern fact from fiction, and cleave to the truth. Allow us to contribute to the creation of a healthy Catholic media culture. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. So, David, why don't you bring us back to, to 1978? Um, Obviously, we had just had the, you know, the two popes of the Vatican Council. Paul VI was, in some ways, uh, it's interesting because uh, he gets a lot of a, a lot of criticism from both the left because of Humanae Vitae in 1968, mm -hmm. and he gets a lot of criticism from the right, from um, the you know traditionalists who don't like the reforms of the Second Vatican Council. So. Um, and also, I guess his personality, you know, people compared him to his predecessor, John the 23rd. And um, he, uh, I guess, had a little bit more of a melancholic personality. Uh, you know, John, <clears throat> John the 23rd was a, you know, a robust, you know, a, a little bit chunky in, in size, a little bit more cherubic. Um, Paul the sixth was a little bit more serious and dour in his approach. Um, he carried out the mission and the legacy of John the 23rd. And he was very close to John the 23rd. In a lot of ways, he was the heir apparent. But anyway, so Paul VI passes away at an old age and then, and then the conclave happens in 1978. Why don't you give a little bit of background into John Paul I's election, what the Cardinals might've been thinking, what, what kind of approach uh, they were taking when they, when they elected him? Sure. Um, well, like like you said, I think that the the general impression of uh, Pope Paul the it really differs on who you're talking to, and um, you know a lot of people. If you're if you're reading people from the secular world or the more like kind of liberal Catholic world, he is seen as as something of a conservative, a, a bit of a hardliner, but also this person who uh, was very, like you said, melancholy indecisive um it took him a very long time to to come to a decision and it would you know he'd anguish over it he was quite sophisticated it seemed like very a very cultured person um 
And I think, that, you know, Pope John Paul I or Albino uh, Luciani uh, was, you know, starkly different from him. And um, it was a really big surprise to the world when, when he was elected. Um, I think it was a surprise to him as well. Um, I don't know the, well, I, I did read about the intricacies of the uh, the conclave, um, but and it seems that there was a you know a, a liberal candidate and a, a more like hardline candidate, right? And then well, he I know the, hard, the the conservative candidate was for the third time in a row they trotted Siri. out Cardinal Siri. Siri, yes, <laughs> yeah, um, and he and he fits into a bunch of traditionalist conspiracy theories. Um, the, the most famous of which is they call it the Siri thesis or the Pope in red, where in 19, in the 1958 conclave, when um, John the 23rd was elected, the, you know, supposedly the, the smoke was white and everyone was expecting the, uh, you know, the new Pope to come out and all of a sudden uh, it turns black and there is, and there was no one elected. And, and, and then a little while later they elect John the 23rd. The, and the story goes that Cardinal Siri had been elected and had taken the name Gregory, I think the 17th, whatever the, the last Gregory was. But then the KGB, who was obviously, they had operatives in the Vatican yes. or the Freemasons. Well, they're probably Freemasonic KGB agents uh, threatened to nuke the Vatican if <laughs> they didn't pick their handpicked candidate who wound up being John the 23rd. Anyway, so then I have, I have heard that. Yes, I, I, I have. And I, now I, I know um, that the, 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 the sort of liberal candidate, I think was Cardinal, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, but uh, Pignadoli. Um, something that sounds like right. That. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now I know that at the time uh, he was considered the sort of prime candidate. Um, what do they call that? Pop? Papabile, um, my, of course, my Italian is just terrible. Papabile, yeah. Papabile, yes. Um, and uh, so he was the one that, that I guess the world's attention was on in terms of, you know, uh, being a sort of great liberal hope for the church. And then as far as I understand, there was a bit of a stalemate. Um, they couldn't reach a, any kind of um, agreement. on, uh, And so Luciani emerges as a compromise candidate um someone just kind of out of the blue i think people recognized that he was a like a, a good decent honest person um maybe some felt that he was a little naive uh that yeah it, it really surprised surprised a lot of people he was but, the uh patriarch of venice like john the 23rd yes. had been that's what they call the, the cardinal archbishop of, of venice and he was um he came from humble origins i think that was one of the things like he was not i i would say that probably the closest equivalent they they talk about um pius x i think supposedly was a was a more simple pastor who was a surprise papal candidate but obviously he i mean it, it's kind of it's a funny thing today to to have that to have this nickname but i guess you know the the tv era had really just encompassed i mean they had had paul the sixth for uh, he was pope for what 15 16 years yeah. or 15 years or so and you know that's sort of when television and and a lot of footage of the pope was real so, so john john paul the first was uh the smiling pope the smiling pope what he was known as and if, you, if you look at pictures of him he does have this wonderful smile he just he just looks like a, a very friendly warm 
Oh, I, I have one. Let's you have one. Yes, there we go. Oh. The smiling pope. Yeah. Smiling, the smiling pope. There he is. There's a there he is smiling again. But I mean, I guess that's the funny thing is they, they weren't used to that. Um yeah, yeah. And then I know that You're in some of the shy. reading. Yeah. Some of the reading that I did, I just read a, a review of John Cornwall's book from the 80s that was sort of the follow-up to the book that we we're talking. But um yeah. he was, I think that he was reserved, he was shy. It was one of those situations where I think he was he became cardinal and then pope, but he wasn't ever uh, he didn't he didn't exhibit that that kind of self confidence or or uh, ambition that maybe a lot of other a lot of other cardinals do. He was he was seen as very humble um, in his approach and very pastoral. And I know that he took you know he was he was a bishop during the time of Vatican II, and he very much embraced those reforms. And in some ways, I think people see him as maybe a, a proto-Francis. Uh, a couple of, and I don't know, sorry to, sorry, sorry to jump in, but some of the other no, things, no, no, that's great. Yeah. some of the other aspects about him, because I've read about him quite a bit. The, there were, the funny thing is, I think three, there were three things about him that were uh, set, that set new precedents for the papacy. The first one is he's the first pope ever to pick a double name. And he was actually, so he he took the names of his two predecessors, John and Paul. Um, and I believe, and I was not old enough, I was actually not born at the time that he was pope. But my understanding is, unlike Pope Francis, he actually went by John Paul the first. Like that that I was after his name. It, it wasn't added you know, yeah, maybe so, maybe someone can correct me in the comments, but my understanding is he added that um, that I afterwards. But so the double name was unprecedented. The other yeah. thing, another thing was he now Pope Paul the sixth had refused or had given away and sold the papal tiara, mm -hmm. um, the crown, the big jeweled crown. One of them is in the uh, Basilica of the National Shrine at the at the of the Immaculate Conception in Washington D.C. And it's on display there, um, but sold and the uh, proceeds were given to the poor. And so John Paul I was the very first pope to be installed without a coronation. Um, mm -hmm. It was just the uh, installation mass, I guess, is the, the term. He also, uh, I believe, refused the sede gestura. And I'm the 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 chair oh, that know. was carried by the attendants. Although yes, may have, right, he did. they he may did. have convinced him to ride in it once or twice, but he really wanted like, to get rid of it shortly and, after. Yeah, yeah. And and John Paul II, you know, totally did away, you know, did away with it, and that's where we got the Pope Mobile. And uh, the other thing is, I believe in his addresses, he was the first Pope, rather than to refer to the office as we. He said, I, he used the first person singular, which became the norm under John Paul and Benedict and now Francis. Although if you look up his one or two, uh, Adam Rasmussen is, Sedia gestatoria, that's the fancy chair um, that the Pope used to get carried around. Thanks, Adam. In. Uh, thanks, Adam. And, uh, yeah, but he, he used I, but if you look up his speeches on the Vatican website, here's the funny thing. The the translators went and changed them all of his eyes to we's. Yeah. So, 
there's, and, uh, there's, there's facing resistance, right, from the the curia and and that sort of thing. They were trying to work work against him a little bit there, and that's something yeah. that comes up a fair bit here. That, yeah, yeah. So it was sort of like he wanted to. He had his own ways, which were not the ways of the Vatican. Um, you know, who knows what would have material materialized if he would have been more assertive about it later on. Um, you get the feeling from a lot of these popes, especially as they age. Like you heard Pope Benedict saying he didn't have the strength to do this or he didn't have the strength to do that. Um, there's the one interview where he said he wanted to be known as Father Benedict instead of Pope Emeritus Benedict, but they, he didn't have the strength to talk him out of it. I think I think there's a, a bit of bullying. <laughs> that, I don't know if bullying is the right word, but I know that, for example, yeah. one of the things is when Pope Benedict came in, um, the people, his attendants were a little bit more uh, traditionalist than it, it, John Paul II. He called his his own shots in his own way. But um, one of the things that I'd heard was that uh, with Pope with Pope Benedict, like they put him in these hats and in the and, and these robes and these jackets and things that were you know really old fashioned and traditionalist. And and people were you know people would talk about Benedict the fashion maven, but really what it was was he wore whatever they told him to wear. <laughs> Um, Pope yeah. Francis, I guess, was a little bit more assertive in the other direction, but um, I it's think funny. we imagine the Pope often as being this, you know, supreme ruler who can, you know, anything he wants gets done immediately. Um, nobody questions him. Nobody, you know, and it's. I think when you when you look deep into how this actually works, it's not really like that at all. He, uh, the Pope, is always in the midst of this huge machinery that's been, you know, running for, you know, <laughs> as long as, you know, just for so long, it's unbelievable. Um, and uh, yeah, there's going to be, there's going to be resistance all over the place. There's going to be at times, you know, like little tricks that are played on the Pope, right. And oh, yeah. uh, people will try to influence the Pope, try to um, intervene in, in um, decisions and, and all sorts of things. So I think that's actually a, a perfectly normal part of the, you know how things work at the Vatican. Yeah, um, I think Pope Francis came in with a little bit more, maybe a little bit more self-assurance or a little bit more of a mandate. But you had these stories early on about how like, you know, he has the Swiss guard standing outside of his room at two in the morning and 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 he's like, have you eaten anything? Are you hungry? You want me to make you a sandwich? And Swiss guard's yeah. like, I'm not, you know, I'm not allowed. And he comes out with a folding chair and tells the Swiss guard to sit down. And he's like, I'm supposed to, you know, but um, there, there's a lot of, you know, small T tradition that's built in with the papacy and with the Vatican. Um, and I think that a lot of, I think that in a lot of ways, John Paul I was, uh, Possibly. I mean, and granted, this is all retrospective and, and based on other people's analyses, analyses, but uh, was maybe overwhelmed by the weight of the office. Um, yeah, like they, they, they often, you know, he's often described as a bit like Pope Francis later on, um, just walking around um, the Vatican and, and talking to people, um, you know, just walking up to them saying like, hi, you know, like what? Like how are you doing, and you know what are what are you working on today, and and that sort of thing, you know, um, and it's depending on who you're who's talking about it. It can either be portrayed as you know he was doing the sort of Pope Francis thing, going out and and speaking with people, or it can be portrayed as he was kind of lost, like he, he was wandering the halls, you know, um, trying to figure out what 
how things worked and 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 what you should do um and it's probably the truth is probably somewhere in between um but yeah maybe he was a little ahead of his time uh, you know it took um you know john paul ii and then you know uh, pope francis and to kind of like you know um create this new understanding of what a pope um can and should be um but i think you know even pope francis faces uh, resistance sometimes right so um it's uh it's it's a tricky thing for for any pope i think um but yeah he i think he captured people's attention and and people's hearts you know because he had that quality of, of a normal person a very humble person um you know he had came from this poor background he was a, a pope of of the poor that you know trying you know the idea was that he was going to bring the idea of the catholic church is the church of the poor you know back into um reality because i think a lot of people felt that it had you know gotten lost in the world of uh you know of power right um and so yeah the when he dies um it's uh it's a huge uh shock and a, a huge um disappointment for anyone who had uh, placed any any hope in, in in any reforms that he might have initiated or where he was going to take the church um and even at the time some were suspicious about how the um how quickly his death was dealt with you know how quickly um they moved on to the uh, the next conclave um so even at the time there were suspicions but these kind of all gathered together and uh and and, and people started doing investigation um eventually we get this book uh coming out in 1984 by david yallop called in god's name investigation into the murder of pope john paul the first and this is a massive bestseller um six million copies worldwide by now um and uh it really sunk into the the popular culture of the 1980s um many people have pointed out to us as we we mentioned we were going to be talking about this and everyone brought up godfather 3 um and yes apparently now i got to admit i have not seen godfather 3 and, uh, and i, I, I haven't thought, watched the whole thing either but i haven't watched the whole thing either. okay um <clears throat> But yes, from, from everything I know about it, it does um, contain a, a, a part of the plot involves um, this um, murder plot against the Pope and uh, involves characters that are sort of loosely mod modeled uh, off of what um, was presented in, in this book, uh, in, in God's name. Um, I don't know if, if anyone watching this is a, a music fan but back in the in the 1980s there was a, a band called the fall and uh, well actually they they, they the, their, their singer just died a few years ago uh mark e smith but um they were uh, kind of this legendary post-punk band and they they um put out a a single called hey luciani uh, i think it was in 1986 uh, and that one um became a, a sort of underground hit and it actually the lyrics deal with this whole conspiracy theory um i guess the singer marquis e. smith had read david yallop's book and he actually created a, an avant-garde play 
that I, I don't know. I think it maybe ran for like one night. Um, <laughs> it was yeah, called. There's a, there's a, actually, there's an interview on YouTube uh, where he's being interviewed about this play. And he's like, yeah, I didn't really. They're like, it's interesting. You don't have any actors in this play. And he's like, well, I put my friends in the play. Yeah. And some of them are very good performers. So it's like, yeah. and, and you didn't actually like do any research or follow the facts. And he's like, no, I didn't really do that. But yeah. He, you just thought that on YouTube, the book, thought it sounded cool. Hey, let's make a play out of it. Exactly. And it was it was called the full title of the play was Hey Luciani, the Life and Codex of John Paul the First. So yeah, I, and I've never been able to find uh, any like a video of the play itself, but I know the the song Hey Luciani very well, and it's kind of a classic. So check it out on YouTube if you, if you can. The Fall Hey Luciani. It's it's, it's so interesting. I, just to just to sort of sum up. Um, in the popular consciousness, the the death the you know the death of John Paul I, which was attributed to natural causes, uh, that some people think it was an em embolism, some people think it was a heart attack, um, but it has just like I guess you would say like the Kennedy assassination, or uh, maybe people would say like the the Jeffrey Epstein suicide. Um, this is this became one of those conspiracy theories in the popular consciousness that people uh a lot of people just took for granted or a lot of people yeah. believed that there were there was there clearly has to be more to this you know he was 65 years old um he had just been elected pope he and then but there were there were certain factors um and maybe you can go into this into a little bit more into a little bit of detail surrounding the circumstances of his of the discovery of his body of the um you know the medical uh analysis or or you know whatever i wouldn't even say there was an investigation but sort of how that was dealt with um you know and then and then going right into uh the burial um you know there was no autopsy yeah. um he was embalmed within a day and you know buried very quickly thereafter yeah the so i mean if you if you look into this deeply there's there's just so much detail that people go over about the um the circumstances of his death but essentially he died through the night um and uh he was found um it was uh i think at first it was claimed that he was found by, now I don't know my notes on this, but uh, I think it was um, Father Maggie, Ma or, Maggie yeah, or McGee or, or so. Yeah. McGee, McGee. Yeah. Um, who had been living um, in a room kind of nearby um, temporarily. Um, but it, it was later revealed that it was a, a nun uh, that had found him. Um, and I believe it was the, the nun who kind of acted as his sort of, you know, personal uh assistant and nurse and, and that sort of thing um well mcgee was his his secretary i believe yeah and then the sister when it, he was a he you know he was very regimented and so he would receive his coffee outside of his room you know she'd knock and say holy father your you know your coffee is ready at like 4 45 uh every morning this particular morning she comes by knocks on the door 10 minutes later he hasn't gotten his coffee and then i i believe she opened the door and discovered his body 
Um, now, yeah. and this is something that I think we don't have an official story on, do we? I mean, or, or an official narrative because there, so the original story is that uh, Monsignor McGee or Bishop, he eventually I think became a, a an archbishop, but um, he, um, you know, he discovers him sitting upright in bed with, with a serene look on his face, with the glasses on the end of his nose, reading uh, the lives of the saints, you know, in this, in this, yes. you know, no, first, first I'd heard, I thought first it was imitation of Christ. That's what I, that's heard. right. It was, it was, yeah, I was thinking yeah. of Butler's. No, it was imitation of Christ that by Thomas Akempis. That's right. Yeah. And yeah. Um, then the story kind of shifted to where it was the, um, you know, it was, it was actually just a book of reflections um, uh, or, or sermons or something like that. Okay. And then, but then, you know, then yeah. they find out that it was the sister that actually, and so there are different versions of this story that are coming out. Now, yeah, the re the reason why I think they portrayed, I, I believe, and I don't know if this has been confirmed, but the theory at least is that he was found crumpled on the floor. And that was, you know, not necessarily the most dignified. It is a bit of hagiography. It, I mean, it's the thing is, it's like that's not going to fly when somebody dies under circumstances where people want to yes. know information. And they, they basically give this, you know, this hagiographical, this fictionalized, serene vision of death when, when in reality it was, you know, it, it was quick, but it, you know, he wasn't going to be smiling. Um, yeah. And, you know, and he wasn't going to be holding on to whatever book or whatever he had in his hands. And um, I think Yallop, based on his research claims that, um, uh, Pope John Paul I was lying in bed, but he had a sort of contorted grimace on his face, like he had he was in he had been in serious pain, and then he was clutching this um, something in his hand, which, as you mentioned, it was first described uh, by the Vatican um, as a copy of the Imitation of Christ. Then uh, it became like a collection of of sermons that he was reviewing, um, and then. Um, Yallop, uh, in, he claims in his book that it was actually his notes regarding some changes he was going to make um, regarding uh, people assigned to various posts within the Vatican. And um, uh, was it also I mean, supposed to be his document overturning Humanae Vitae? Because that was really the crux. Yeah, of we're going to get to that. We're going to get to <laughs> okay. that. Yeah, the because that's another another aspect of it. So one part of it was, you know, he was. Um, supposed to be holding this um, this document that would have um, outlined the the changes to uh, or the organization of the Vatican and some of the the plans that he had that would have you know rocked the world kind of thing yeah. you know that's the uh, um, I mean it's just it's just too you know while the 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 idea of him dying with a sort of you know uh, serene look on his face you know with the imitation of Christ is kind of you know it's hagiographical and, and sort of ridiculous on its face um so is i think the idea that he died with clutching this uh you know this bunch of papers that outlined his his revolutionary plans for the church um it, it does seem a bit much um you know and, and maybe it is true that it was just some stuff he was looking over for um the next day or you know for a you know a, a homily or whatever that we don't really know it's it's the what he was holding um 
disappeared. So uh, apparently there was a, he had a glass of water beside the bed or something like that, slippers, and those disappeared as well very quickly. Um, the person who Yallop blames for kind of pulling this whole um, sort of cover up regarding his death is uh, Cardinal uh, Vio, who was the uh, V-I-L-L-O-T, uh, who was the, uh, the the Vatican Secretary of State at the at the, at the time, and um, so he came in very quickly. Apparently, grabbed a well, bunch. Well, he of also had a meeting the night before. Uh, yeah, with and with. I, and was apparently the last person known to see uh, John Paul I alive, and the the reports or you know certain people claimed that they had a very contentious meeting or they fought or something like that. Um, McGee and and other people who were there claimed that 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 it wasn't you know a, a hostile meeting or anything. Although they, you know, I guess, I guess the two of them didn't see eye to eye. And I guess people thought that below uh, maybe was a Freemason or that, I mean, we can go into that a little bit more. We'll, we'll get into Obviously that. the yeah. Freemasons are going to show up, you know, it's a, it's a Vatican conspiracy theory, so they have to. Yeah. Um, but well, um, part, of this, part of this idea that, he, that, that Pope John, uh, I'll just call him JP1, um, the JP1 was holding um, the, this plan for uh, uh, new appointments um, within the Vatican was that he was going to rid the Vatican of people who had been revealed as Freemasons. Um, and we'll get into that a little bit. It's, it's very shaky stuff, but um, well. <laughs> and just, I guess one historical footnote, um, and I remember this distinctly, was in 2005 when John Paul II died. Um, and I mentioned this to you earlier, David. Um, I remember that the official story of his death, and if anyone, I was following him very closely when it happened at the time, but we could see his health was deteriorating. He got, a, I believe he got a tracheotomy at a certain point. He hadn't been speaking for days, but supposedly right before he died, it's reported that he said, and now I enter in, I return to the home of my father or something like that, <laughs> you know, and it's like, how does, <laughs> how in the world did he, you know, but it, they, I guess they're always trying to, I mean, this is just sort of the way things, I mean, it's the nature of hagiography. It's, it's like, let's tell it in a story way when, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, with John Paul II, it was clear that he was nearing the end. No one was suspecting foul play, but in the case of John Paul I, when they twist the story, and, and the thing is, the story with the nun, uh, they didn't want to give the appearance of impropriety that he was found by a woman. Now, apparently she was an elderly nun. You know, he was an elderly man in poor health. Um, not elderly. He was only 65. But I mean, it, you know, it, it was ridiculous. But but in order to maintain these, you know, these traditional standards of um, appearances and to prevent scandal, they create this fiction that makes the, you know, that then when people are trying to get the facts, make them a lot harder to, uh, to believe. Yeah. And this, this drives me insane. Um, Cause you know, I, I'm just a big fan of, you know, just tell the truth. Tell, I want to know what, you know, like if you're talking about a saint or if we're talking about a, a Pope, like I want to know what they were really like. Don't give me, um, you know, the, the sort of um, idealized version of it, because for one thing, it gives people who are, 
trying to like, you know, dig into the lives of popes or the lives of saints in order to like debunk them and all this. It gives them fuel, right? Because it, um, there are some things that are just kind of made up and, um, you know, uh, and so, you know, I think the potential for scandal is actually a lot higher if you, you try to, you know, um, cover up the truth or if you try to, you know, try to make things look even, you know, like look more dignified or more, um, uh, than they, than they really are. And I mean, what if the idea of, 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 of JP one being discovered by uh, a female, I mean, would that have scandalized anyone really in 1978? I don't Not think unless so. They really, really wanted to be scandalized. Yeah, like it may, I can't imagine, but <laughs> you know, this sort of the closed world of the Vatican, it did feel that way. Um, but it, it, it is certainly, I think something we'll run into that this, tendency to sort of go into protective mode and try to cover up, avoid scandal, put the the most sort of, you know, pious front on everything um, ends up backfiring always. Um, so, um, yeah, so I think, you know, we've, we've touched on the circumstances of his death and we'll get into that more a little bit later when we, we look at the actual accusation regarding what might have happened to him. Um, and uh, I mean, I'll, I guess we can just say that, um, you know, Yallop in particular makes the case that uh, JP1 was poisoned, um, that he uh, had specifically a, a drug called Digitalis, um, which is used as a heart medication, I believe, but it's also, uh, it is used sometimes as a, a poison because a, a large dose can uh, stop the heart pretty quickly or, or put a person into a, a crisis. Um, and it's, uh, you know, relatively easy to, uh, to, to poison someone with one of the characters that we're going to be looking at when we get into the deep into the you know financial corruption angle of this actually tried to kill himself in prison using digitalis um, the same the same drug um, and then was later actually uh, poisoned with cyanide so this kind of stuff does go on it's not like it's uh, I, I realized you know digging into this Italy is a place where poisonings assassinations uh blackmail uh you know all sorts of corruption really does happen <laughs> fairly frequently or at least it did happen um at the, i've at the also top. noticed and this is my own personal theory which i'm sharing publicly for the first time ever okay. when i read an italian news story and no offense to those of you who are italian journalists out there but i always assume that the uh boring facts have been padded by 30 percent minimum <laughs> Just to make the story a little bit more interesting, I think you yeah, because it's, it's got to be yeah. it's got to be fun, you know. It's got to be like it's got to be exciting and uh, full of intrigue, and I mean it, it's really fascinating. I mean, I don't I don't know Italian culture all that well, but it does seem that that some of the the, the stereotypes we think of when we think of like you know the mafia and political corruption and all this kind of stuff, there's there's some truth there. Um, at least it plays out in in this absolutely. So. We'll we'll get back though, you know, later on to the actual circumstances of his alleged poisoning. But um, I think one thing we should look at today is um, this narrative that Yallop builds, um, and which other people have built on as well, that um, JP One was assassinated because he was planning on uh, either modifying or, you know, fairly radically changing church teaching on birth control. Um, now, this um, comes, you know, 
after uh, we had you already talked about uh, uh, Pope Paul VI's uh, 1968 uh, encyclical, uh, Humanae Vitae, uh, on on birth control, um, and it's I think it's important to note that you know within um, the Catholic, the larger Catholic world. Uh, Humanae Vitae 1968 was a, a real earthquake, like an absolute, you know, uh, sort of earth shattering event on par, I think, for many ordinary Catholics with the Second Vatican Council itself, like in terms of its its importance. Um, it um, just just to give a little a little background on Humanae Vitae um, for those who don't know it. So um, in Pope uh, in in 1962. A, uh, a pontifical commission was set up uh, on the family to to look into the question of uh, the use of birth control and specifically um, the use of the pill um, and whether it was whether or not it is morally licit to to do this. Um, so this uh, commission it it eventually comprised uh, sixty four or sorry sixty eight people. Um, and Yallop describes these as a collection of, of theologians, le legal experts, historians, sociologists, doctors, obstetricians, and married couples. So a wide variety of people on this commission. After a long deliberation, um, uh, I think it was 1966, they, they submitted their uh, report, which did advise for a change in church teaching regarding birth control. The... Um, the majority, uh, this this opinion was upheld by the majority of the people on the commission, so 64 of them, and then there were four objecting, um, and then those those four were were priests. Now there was also a group of of cardinals and and bishops that were overseeing this commission. They got the report. Eight of them voted in favor of the report, so in favor of changing the teaching. Six voted against, and then six abstained. Uh, and this is this is all coming from from Yallop's book. Now, the uh, someone intervened at this point. It's the, um, the notoriously reactionary Cardinal um, Ottaviani, um, and uh, you know, kind of famous the, character from Vatican II. <laughs> and then he was, uh, you know, he a big. He he was the name on the famous Ottaviani report that re rejected, I think it was drafted by uh, Archbishop Lefebvre, but the, the Ottaviani intervention before the new mass was implemented at the end of 1968, I think. Um, yeah. Basically this document that that, that said that it essentially said it invalidated the Eucharist. Um, and yes. Ottaviani didn't mean for that to be leaked actually and he met privately with paul the sixth and he recanted but that was a big yeah he he was sort of the a proto cardinal burke maybe yeah, but without very... but with the exception of that getting together with the pope and retracting the public document that protested the pope's changes so. yeah he had he had a lot more power than cardinal burke has right like he, he actually That's true. Had, he was the head of the holy office which was the precursor yeah. to the cdf at one time so 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 yeah he's this you know very significant figure um so he he intervenes he contacts the the four people who objected to or voted against the report the minority um group these four priests and um uh encourages them 
to write their own report. Now, their objections, I guess, had been contained in the original report, but he wants them to write their own minority report. They do, and then that minority report is sent along with the original report to um, Pope Paul VI for him to consider. Um, now, this is a curveball I might be throwing at you, but it, and, yeah. and you might not know the answer to it. But is it true that, I guess, that, that report was never meant to, to be released to the public, but the National Catholic Reporter got a hold of it? is my That's understanding quite, and released it i i haven't looked into it but you know what i've found i've i've I found um on online you can find pdfs of all the old issues of national catholic reporter from the 1960s into the 70s and um uh i, I have seen the ones around the release of humanae vitae but I, I should look at the ones you know in the years uh just before that to see about the the leaking of this i, I don't know anything about it but uh it's certainly an area of interesting uh, research, but, um, but yeah, I, I've seen um, National Catholic Reporter was, was definitely reporting on uh, all of this stuff back at the, in the time. And I mean, it was actually, this was a, the attention of the world was really focused on, on, on the Pope around this time. Um, now, so you have this idea though, that um, things are moving towards this change in uh, teaching on birth control. It was actually like, I guess you could say it was maybe the sort of prevailing theological opinion and the, definitely the, the prevailing opinion, I think, among ordinary Catholics that this was going to change. It just depended like how much would it change, what kind of theological justification would be used. Um, so it came as a an absolute you know, earthquake when um, Humanae Vitae comes out and it basically restates existing Catholic teaching on birth control with no changes. And it even uses a sort of semi-scholastic approach in um, its justification. So it's like the worst nightmare come true for anyone who was you know, hoping for this change. Now, um, it is true as Yallop claimed, or it appears to be true from everything that I can find that um, Albino Luciani, when he, um, in the, the, the time leading up to um, Humanae Vitae, he, he did um, believe that a, a change in church teaching regarding birth control was, was possible and he thought it could be justified. Um, and he actually wrote um, a report um, or a sort of private communication um, that was then adopted or signed by a number of other bishops from his uh, region, and it was sent to Pope Paul VI. Um, I've, I've I've read ab about the report, and um, but then actually there's a um, La Stampa um, published. I think it's a couple of years ago. Um, uh, something about how the the original text has been um, discovered. Uh, and uh, I think it's going to become part of a, a new book on on Pope John Paul the uh, First. So that's kind yeah, of yeah. Actually, I'm, I can post that link. I, I just yeah, if you can post it, it's great. One of the one of the interesting things about it is he makes the case not for um, just any type of birth control. He's he's not arguing that um, church teaching should be changed regarding other types of birth control, but only regarding the pill. He thinks that the progesterone pill, um, and I haven't looked into the theological justification behind this, but he thinks that it can be theologically justified, I think, because it works with the body's 
sort of naturally occurring. Yeah, uh, I mean, not, like along those not lines. that I'm a bioethicist or anything like that, yeah. but I, my, my understanding is that prior to the contraceptive pill, um, you, there were other um, forms of contraception, like barrier methods, which kind of place, and not to get too icky, but place kind yeah. of a, a blockage on performing the, the marital embrace, to use an, a euphemism, uh, you know, there's an obstruction in the way. Or uh, other other techniques were more abortifacient, like they, or they would prevent implantation, whereas this would prevent ovulation, which, you know, basically you can partake in the marital embrace without, you know, without obstruction and you aren't risking an abortion. So they're thinking like, maybe this is the middle ground. And that, that was sort of the, the theological or the, the, the biological bioethical uh, justification that Luciani and others seemed to favor. And it's actually what, I think that's the main reason why they even had this commission. Um, it was because the, the pill was something novel. You know, it, 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 you know, even though it worked towards the same uh, goal as prior contraception, this was uh, it was a different a different process at work. So and I believe it was developed by a Catholic scientist originally. Um, and so people thought, well, maybe we can make this the Catholic pill, like the sort of the Catholic version of birth control. Even though it's Yeah. And I think I think with Luciani, it wasn't about. Um, you know, buying into the sexual revolution or anything like no. that. It was just, you know, coming from a poor part of Italy and, you know, seeing how a lot of families were struggling with, you know, all these kids. If there was a theologically possible way, um, he would be welcoming towards. Yeah, him. that's that's something that that, that comes up um, uh, when, when you read about him is that it, this was not at all based on anything. It wasn't really anything to do with the sexual revolution. It was He's looking at people who had, you know, who were desperately poor, had like, you know, 10 kids, um, you know, couldn't think, imagine how they could support more. Um, and then there was also um, the the question of overpopulation, um, which was a huge concern at the time um, because you had, you know, great numbers, of, like huge child mortality, children starving and all this stuff. And people said like, you know, the world's population is booming. Um, we need to do something to control it, or there's just not going to be enough um, resources to go around. And Paul the Sixth himself, in in Populorum Progressio, I think um, the the encyclical um, had actually said that this is a legitimate concern, you know, um, and that governments can engage in um, it can encourage population control as long as the way they do it is morally licit, right? So um, now that. I think gave people a lot of people the expectation and, and maybe even people like Luciani that um, the Vatican was concerned about this and maybe they would consider the pill as one of these licit ways of controlling population. Um, so yeah, it was not, it was not about um, sexual freedom or anything like that. Really. This was, he was, he was really a, a people of the poor, I think. Um, but you know, the, all of this, um, it needs to be, you know, pretty heavily qualified because when um, Humane Vitae came out, um, apparently uh, JP1, he, Albino Luciani, sent uh, a, a note to his his diocese saying it was something along the lines of, "I, 
I know this is really a difficult thing and I, I really wish that a way could have been found to um, offer people some kind of, you know, uh, hope or, or some kind of, um, you know, way to, uh, he didn't, he doesn't say it outright, but he's saying, you know, I wish that, I wish that the outcome could have been different here. Um, but this is what the Pope has said. We have to support it. And he did not flag on that. Um, now Yallop makes a lot out of, um, some, I think fairly little things like, um, apparently when JP one became Pope, he, um, avoided sort of addressing, um, anything to do with Humanae Vitae. Um, he seemed to be kind of hostile to the mention of it. Um, of course, he, had only been, he was only Pope for a month, so. I know, that's the thing. Like it's, it's you, you can take these little things and, and kind of blow them up. Um, and he, apparently he was, in, in October, he was scheduled, he had agreed to meet with a, a United States Commission on Population Control. Um, we don't know what the meeting was going to be about. It may have just been, you know, they wanted to talk to the Pope about this issue. The, and I, there's no indication that this was anything where Pope Paul uh, or Pope uh, JP one would have said, Hey, we're going to, we're going to work with you and we're going to change, you know, our church teaching on birth control. But that's the way Yala presents well, it. Well, Yala thought he was going to make an announcement or something at this meeting or that it was going to be. Yeah. Big, yeah. Yeah. Like he sees this as like huge. And it was like, the fact that he accepted this meeting, that it was going to happen, that that all of a sudden the the curia launches into you know like uh, the alarms start going off and uh, and they think oh this is a bad sign it shows he's going to change the teaching we got to stop this from happening um, I just don't buy it um, I I don't think there's any um, any any uh, suggestion that he um, was taking any steps to to you know go about even looking into the possibility of changing this teaching. Um, I'm not going to say that um, he couldn't because I, I don't, it's not up for me to say what a Pope can and can't do. Um, but um, I just, I think he probably would have wanted to move ahead based and, and not, it would be difficult to see a Pope contradicting another Pope um, on such a fraught issue so soon after, um, especially so soon after it, it had become, you know, promulgated. Right. Well, and I kind of noticed that with, you know, if you read, um, Pope Benedict's work from prior to uh, John Paul II's papacy and prior to him joining the Curia, um, his views on on issues like uh, you know divorce and remarriage, divorce and remarriage, or, or communion for the divorced and remarried, uh, were you know I would say that you know having read his old document from 1972, he was probably more uh, progressive on the issue than like Cardinal Casper even yeah uh, ever was and and then so he but you know as uh as prefect for the congregation of the doctrine of the faith under john paul ii obviously it's his job to uh carry out the work of the of the pope which included john paul's very strong positions on that issue and mm -hmm. so in the other direction and so when benedict became pope he wasn't going to reverse those positions, even if, you know, and, and I think there's also, okay, well, this has been decided by Rome and so forth. And and actually when, when Francis came around, um, that's, you know, there was this huge backlash, but actually Francis didn't go anywhere near as far as either then 
Bishop or Father Ratzinger had or or Casper. It was yeah. a, it was a more nuanced view that was much closer to John Paul II's. Not that his critics yeah. let you believe Not that. that but, would know. <laughs> but yeah, but it's, yeah. It, I mean, it's one of those things. I think I, he he had a respect for. He was a man of you know man of the church. Yeah. He respected the papacy. He respected um, you know uh, Paul the sixth. And so I don't think that they're necessarily you know being his immediate successor. I don't think he had. Uh, those quick, you know, those impulses to to change the teaching, and and as it stands, we'll never know what his what his papacy yeah. might have been like. Um, I mean, it's it, you know, it's interesting that you talk about um, uh, you know Ratzinger in, in relation to this. Um, I, I can't remember now exactly where I read it, but it was, I, I think it was on Twitter somewhere. It was his reaction um, uh, to Humanae Vitae itself, um, where he was, I think he 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 maybe expected that the teaching would be reaffirmed, but he, even he was a little surprised at how it was theological. I, mean, I think you said disappointed or, or disappointed. Yeah. Or he was I mean, unhappy with it at first or something like that. And then eventually. Like, yeah. yeah. Like, Rat, like he Ratzinger's, you know, his thinking was not simplistic. He was among, you know, this, this group of sort of elite, you know, theologians. Right. Um, and they had very sophisticated ideas it wasn't before Humanae Vitae, it, it would have not been a, a very sort of controversial thing in theology, I think, to um, to to see that, you know, this teaching could change. Um, now, I think Ratzinger, you know, like as he got older, became more firm in, in it, basically just more of a conservative, right? And, um, you know, wanted to um, sort of push back a little or, or shape some of the, you know, legacy of Vatican II. And then you get people like Hans Kung who go the uh, the opposite direction, right? Um, like well, and I think I think with, with, with Ratzinger, sorry, I've got a four-year-old running down, up and down the hall. Yeah, no worries. But, uh, but I, with him, I mean, it, it was his job. He was, the, he was the head of, he was the prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And when you are in that position, you should be doing what the Pope asks of you. I mean, that's part of the reason yeah. why Cardinal Mueller didn't last very long under Francis. I mean, he lasted his full term, but it seemed that Francis uh, worked around him. But um, yeah, it just it's it just a funny. Yeah, it, it, they, they were like oil and water and. Um, you know, apparently a lot of these documents just went around him and, and the CDF didn't put out any documents and, and then he had to find someone he could work with better. Um, yeah. And and when you're doing your job, like Ratzinger did, you you do you do what the Pope asks you to do. Yeah. Now, in the in the sort of, I guess, the liberal Catholic world, I mean, I, don't, I, I know I'm using these terms liberal and conservative that are, you know, the, I've kind of given up on that. Like everybody yeah. knows what you mean when you say yeah. left and right. Like, yeah. okay, I understand technically, and we're not talking about politics. We're not talking about who you're going to vote for in an election. But yeah. I mean, it's just these sensibilities. It's like you know, yeah, more relaxed on sexual issues, more. Um, you know, I'm not saying either one is like absolutely right or wrong or anything. I'm just you know, like this is. But in that sort of liberal Catholic world, the. And, and this is this relates back to what, about you know Cardinal Otto, Ottaviani's role. Um, the idea was that Humanae Vitae, the 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 tragedy of it for them was that this was a victory of the Curia because, and and Hans Kung is responsible in large part for um, putting getting this idea going um, because it, for for Hans Kung um, he thought anyway that 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 Pope Paul the uh, sixth 
wanted to change the teaching. Um, I don't know if there's any evidence for this at all. Um, I haven't looked into it too deeply, but um, but that what held him back was that um, he couldn't, he didn't want to contradict past papal teaching, right? And it just seemed to be such a clear contradiction. Any change, any even the smallest change would contradict. And so that would undermine the idea of papal authority or this idea, this larger idea of infallibility. And that was what the curia wanted to protect. And so you have this idea that the church was kind of robbed of something by the curia because they wanted to preserve um, their authority um, over and above the sort of ordinary Catholic, right? Um, and so that's why I think this this uh, conspiracy theory plays into um, that that larger liberal narrative so well, um, because here you have the idea that you have a pope who's kind of trying to fix um, what had happened, that he's trying to fix this sort of takeover by the, the curia, and um, he's going to... Um, He's going to make the change that the the people actually wanted, right? Um, and then and then he's murdered for it, right? And so it's once again, um, the 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 Vatican kind of eats its own and, and consolidates its its power, right? Um, and and that's it's a very powerful sort of narrative, right? Um, and now in the end, though, this is the least convincing narrative, I think, um, for some of the reasons that we've discussed. The the fact that um, uh, Albino Luciani. Um, when he, when Humane Vitae was actually um, released, he wholeheartedly supported it and did not waver in his support moving forward. I mean, he seemed to be a very merciful guy. He was very, he advocated, I think, you know, um, taking a very merciful approach to couples um, practicing birth control. And I think, um, or, or couples struggling with the issue of, of birth control. Um, but uh, I, I, I don't think that there's, any sense that it was going, uh, that there was this change was coming. I also, it, to me, it just doesn't seem possible or feasible that anyone in the Vatican, in order to preserve church teaching, would actually kill a pope. I mean, like that's you, you're kind of by like murdering the pope. I mean, that's kind of the the <laughs> like the like almost like the the ultimate. Sing like take away his ink and quill and, and yeah. turn off his microphone or something like that. Yeah. yeah. I can I could see I could see all sorts of stuff going on, like shenanigans, like them trying to um, you know, convince him to do this or that, or trying to distract him, or trying to, you know, you know, intervene in one way or another, right? Like that's kind of normal almost, but to actually assassinate the Pope is it just it's beyond anything that that I consider possible. Now Next week we're 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 going to yeah, we're over an hour, so yeah, yeah. we're, we're so, going to have a part two of this. We're going to have a so part two of this, and and this gets into the much crazier, crazier stuff. But it's actually the stuff that I find a little more like. And I, again, I don't think uh, JP one was murdered, but I actually do find this stuff more convincing, even though it's a lot crazier. Um, and uh, it's 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 fascinating. It's complex, but we'll get deep into that uh, next time. So thank you everyone for uh, joining us for part one of the uh, JP1 uh, mystery. Um, for those of you who uh, enjoy The Critical Catholic or Where Peter Is Live or wherepeteris.com, uh, consider becoming a Patreon sponsor. And for those of you who are Patreon sponsors,
uh, this Thursday, we're going to have a little bit of an open house or a little bit of a, um, I guess, a group Zoom. I don't know. You're going to be there, right, David? You try to make it. Um, yeah, I'll yeah, be there. All your favorite contributors, all your favorite Patreon sponsors will will, will stop by at eight o'clock. So um, we're taking a break from where Peter is live. But at, during that time, um, Patreon sponsors and contributors are going to have sort of a, an online virtual party. So um, you're all welcome to join. We'll, we'll pull that together. I'll, get, I'll talk to Rachel and we'll get that going. But anyway, uh, until next time, uh, God bless and take care. And where is that closing music? There it is. All right. Goodbye. <laughs>